every Hardy Boys book that I could read, and then my uh, family would buy my sister Nancy Drew books that she hated to read, so I'd read all the Nancy Drew books too. I loved mysteries. With my grandmother in Pittsburgh, I would watch like mystery shows with her, like Poirot, you know, with the little mustache, and he would come in and solve it, and I'd try to solve it before him and put together all the pieces. And we would watch Miss Marple mysteries, and then my grandmother down in Tennessee, we'd watch Matlock and Diagnosis Murder, and I loved mysteries and trying to figure out what's happening and who did what and putting together all the pieces. I love the allure of the unknown. And so it's little wonder that when I grew up, I went into theology, right? I pursued a career in theology because the study of the spiritual and the supernatural perhaps is the biggest mystery in our world, right? That's one of the most mysterious things that we have, the unseen world of God. It's like super real, but at the same time, it's hard to see or spot or really fully understand. Theology means the study of God, and unlike biology or geology, if you're going to study biology, what do you do? You find something alive and you study it. If you're going to study geology, what do you do? You're like, here's some rocks, let's study it. But we can't put God under a microscope because God is mysterious. He's elusive. Or in the words of theology, he is transcendent. If you want to introduce a new word to your Scrabble game or to you, just your friends when you're hanging out at the pub, you can throw out the word transcendent. Transcendent means it's beyond the scope of normal human experience or investigation. Or in other words, God is someone that we can't study unless he reveals himself to us. We can only learn what we can about God based on what he reveals about himself to us. So the criticism I often hear leveled against God is, if he wants to be known, if he wants to be loved, why doesn't he show up in a more powerful or persuasive way? Why does God remain so elusive if he really wants to be known and loved? Why doesn't he show up in a powerful or flashy way? As one of my friends said, why doesn't he show up as a 900-foot-tall person and say, I am God, worship me? I think the way that he did show up as Jesus as a simple rabbi in the backwater land of Palestine, this small part of the Roman Empire, I think reveals a great deal about his character and nature. God didn't show up in a big flashy way. He didn't show up as a giant with a huge fist over the earth. Instead, he showed up as a simple servant. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about who is God? What is God like? Like, if you had to describe God, how would you describe him? What do we mean when we say God? And uh, we've talked about how a wrong idea of God, a fixation with a wrong element of his nature, will lead to incorrect ideas about who he is and how we should live as we reflect him in the world. I think it's very important that we have a clear understanding of what God's like and what God's not like. And this is essential to understanding why God seems so mysterious and elusive. God doesn't want to coerce people into loving him with a great display of power. If a 900-foot-tall God showed up, it might be undeniable. Some people might be like, man, what if we just spoke that we see this? But for most people, it would be undeniable. But they wouldn't love him because of his character. They would love him because of his power. And God doesn't want to coerce people into loving him with a display of power. He wants to invite people to love him with non-grandiose, and at times seemingly ordinary actions of love. 
N.T. Wright, who is the foremost New Testament scholar of our day, he says, if we were an all-powerful God, we would operate differently. We expect God to show up with tanks, a big display of power, and roll in and conquer. Instead, he sends his son. So many times, the way that God operates seems mysterious to us. We're like, why didn't he do this? Or why didn't he show up here? Or why isn't he more of this or more of that? But I think that being mysterious in and of itself can be alluring. In the words of that great theologian Stephen King, um, not a theologian, right? But every once in a while he says something that actually resonates with reality. He said this, it's the unsolved mysteries that always linger with us the longest. And maybe if God gave us all the answers and he just spelled it all out for us, we would be like bored with it. I don't know. But instead, God seems to tease us with little tidbits about his love and to draw us, um, to winsomely draw us into a relationship with himself. Over and over again, when Jesus was asked a question, instead of giving someone a simple answer, he would ask them a question back to get to the heart of the real issue of why they were asking their question. See, God seems much more interested in helping us find the answers rather than just blatantly telling us what to think. And I think sometimes we're like, God, just tell us what to think. Just explain it to us. And he's like, no, no, no. I want you to dive into this. I want you to go on an adventure with me. I want you to really seek it out and search it out. In the words of Jesus, those who truly seek find. He wants to guide us, but he doesn't want to drive us to truth. He wants to guide us to truth, but he doesn't want to drive us. He seems to value human intelligence and free will far too much to not leave some room for a little mystery. Now, you've probably heard at some point in your life, whether you've been religious or in church or out of church or just in the world, you've probably heard someone say, God works in mysterious ways. Anybody ever hear that? Yeah, I've heard that growing up. I've heard that in uh, movies and just in the community. And often it works something like this. People will credit divine providence to some random series of events. For instance, imagine that there was a young couple. And they're a cool young couple, and they're living in an apartment below five Villanova college students who like to party all the time. And they're praying passionately for the Villanova college students to stop tailgating right outside of their bedroom window at all hours of the night and playing beer pong and inviting the entire soccer team over to tailgate outside their bedroom window at all hours of the night. And then a virus, like the coronavirus, let's just say, for instance, comes and NCAA basketball is canceled, so they have nothing to party about anymore and uh, those that couple might say something like oh God works in mysterious ways he used a global pandemic to uh, quiet down the neighbors um, so sometimes it's used in that terms this is just a theoretical couple I'm not saying this is real um, that statement though that God works in mysterious ways isn't found in the Bible but the Bible does talk repeatedly about how God does work and many times his ways seem mysterious. The way that he operates seems mysterious. He seems to have a love for mystery. Take, for instance, Job 11, 7 through 9. It says, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? He, um, they are higher than the heavens above. What can you do about it? They are deeper than the deeps below. What could you possibly know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Or consider Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declare the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are high above your thoughts. 
or in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. That is, the secret things belong to Yahweh, the name of God. If God told us everything about himself, I think our brains would explode. And so he's told us some things about himself, but he hasn't told us everything. He's left some things to mystery because he's too big. No matter how brilliant our minds are, his full self is too much for us to fully handle. There's this picture in the Old Testament where Moses goes up to the mountain and he meets with God and God writes down the laws for the nation of Israel to be the special people who are going to be his platform for a special person, Jesus, to restore heaven and earth. And Moses is up there and God's like, I'm going to show some of myself to you, but I'm not going to show my full self because it would kill you. And I think sometimes with God, we're like, take away all the mystery. And God's like, if I did, you couldn't handle it. It's too much for you. Like, imagine, for instance, that our brains are like this simple glass, and God starts revealing himself to us, and pretty soon he fills up, and if he keeps doing it, he's just going to keep overfilling and overfilling and overfilling. And the problem is, he's not just one of these jars, he's like jar after jar after jar, and you would just keep, it's too much for you to handle or process. Or in the words of one of my seminary professors, I know everybody's now nervous about how I've ruined the floor up here. Um, Grace Chapel, who rents us this space, I hope you're not watching. Um, my seminary professor said to me once, he says, imagine trying to be a Coke King. Like, I've never thought about that. He's like, imagine you're a Coke King, and you're trying to put all of the universe inside of you. The Coke can couldn't handle it. The Coke can would actually be submerged by the ocean. And he said, so it is with us when we try to fully understand the New Testament talks a lot about the mysteries of God. The word translated mystery in the New Testament is mysterion. Uh, it's a Greek word. It literally means to shut the mouth, which is the idea of keeping a secret. To not open your mouth and explain something. You're like, hmm, I'm not going to tell you that. You just don't need to know. I'm going to keep my mouth closed about that. To not fully explain something. In Colossians 1, 25-26, it says, I've become a servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. This mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to all the Lord's people. And it goes on to explain how now Jew and Greek worship together in the church. And what Paul is saying is, this is a mystery. Nobody before this would have said, you know what, there's going to come a time when Jews and Greeks and Jews and pagans all worship a Jewish Messiah together. No one thought that was going to happen. It was a mystery. In Matthew 13, 11, Jesus says, Because the knowledge of the mystery of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but it's not been given to them. So he says, you know about the mystery of the kingdom, how I'm going to set up my rule and reign in the hearts and minds of men and women and boys and girls first before I take up physical reign on this earth. It's a mystery. Ephesians 1, 9, Paul says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And so Paul says here, we know the mystery of what God wants us to do, our purpose for being alive, for existing in this world. In 1 Timothy 3, 9, he says, Paul is telling Timothy that they must keep hold of the deep mysteries of the faith with a clear conscience, talking about leaders in the church. In Ephesians 6, 19, he says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I can fearlessly make known the mystery 
of the gospel. There's something mysterious about this good news that God laid down his life for us so that we could have a relationship with him. And so over and over, this idea of mystery is throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, and our rational Western minds don't want mystery. They want God to lay out all the facts, to explain himself fully, all his ways of operating, and then we want to analyze it and decide whether or not we like it. That's what we want to do with our Western rational minds. But that's not how relationships work, right? When did you ever start a relationship with somebody and you're like, okay, tell me everything about yourself. I want to just get all the background down. I want to make sure your credit's good. I want to make sure you're a decent person. I want to know everything bad you did. Lay everything out for me, and then I'll decide whether or not I even want to continue having a conversation with you. That'd be a horrible way to operate, right? Now, that might be how religion works. You lay out all the facts and you say, do I want to accept this religion? But that's not the way that relationships work. That's not the way you start a relationship of love with somebody. You don't sit down on a date and you're like, tell me everything bad you've ever done. Tell me everything good you've ever done. Let me analyze whether or not I want to be in a relationship with you. You meet someone and over time you develop trust. And when there's pieces that you don't understand, that trust helps you bridge those now, I grew up in a Christian tradition where they would often say on Sunday something like this. If you believe without a shadow of a doubt, you will truly be saved. Now, that terrified me as a kid because I was the type of kid that had a shadow of doubt about everything. People would say, do you like mac and cheese? And I'm like, I do like mac and cheese, but do I really like it? There may be some flavors that I don't like. And like I get inside my own head and I'm like, I'm not sure I like mac and cheese without a shadow of a doubt. And then when they say, are you truly believing in Jesus without a shadow of a doubt? I'm like, I'm not sure without a shadow of a doubt that there was a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, let alone that he was God. I have doubts. And sometimes that made me very, very fearful because the way they talked about it in the church that I attended was that if you had any doubts, that you were somehow not in that doubts weren't allowed, that you had to be fully 100% convinced, or you were out. But if God is a mystery, if he loves mysteries, that means that he expects doubts. In a mystery, nobody says, I'm 100% sure about this. 100% no doubts whatsoever. In a mystery, there's always a little room for doubt. Have you ever seen one of those mystery movies where at the end the detective comes in and he goes, I think you did the murder. And then he explains how they did the murder, and you're like, oh, no, I never thought of that. And then somebody perks up and says they could do the murder because they're left-handed, and it was fired with a left hand, a right-handed gun or something. And you're like, oh, yeah, they did do it. And then he's like, oh, no, no, this person did it. And there's always that little room where you're like, I think they did it, but there's a little room for doubt. That is part of mystery. Faith, or in simpler terms, trust, always requires a level of mystery. It isn't faith if there is no room for doubt. If you're waiting in your life to be 100% sure about God, 100% sure about Jesus, you'll wait forever because he's always going to leave a little piece in there for mystery. And that means there will always be a little piece that has some room for doubt. You can ask questions, you can experiment with the teachings of Jesus, but at some point you have to jump and say, I'm not 100% sure, I'm never going to be 100% sure, but that's okay. That's what it means to have faith, that's what it means to trust, that's what it means to believe. 
It doesn't mean you accept everything or that you're certain about everything right now. It means you're starting on a journey with Jesus. I think if we're going to say only people who have zero doubts about Jesus are in, I think that's going to exclude all of us. Because there's going to come some morning when you wake up and you're like, I don't even know if this is the matrix or the real world. I'm so, like, tired this morning. I don't, can't tell what's real and what's not, let alone whether or not there was a man named Jesus who was actually God. But the good news is, because God is a mysterious God, he allows for us to have some doubts. He allows for us to have some questions. The Christian faith is a pilgrimage, not a destination. And I think a lot of people in our community see the Christian faith as a destination. Like, once I believe everything, I'll get to this point where I can follow Jesus. And that's not the picture that we have of the Christian faith throughout history or the picture of the Christian faith in the Bible. People start following Jesus, and they grow to trust him more as they follow him longer and longer. That means that you'll have doubts, and you'll discover things that you held dearly to at first that you realize later on don't align with you. It means you'll have lots and lots of questions, and some you'll find an answer to as you pursue Jesus over a lifetime, and some you'll be left asking your entire life, and that's okay. Now, the New Testament writers make several references to Jesus himself being a mystery, like the way that he showed up as a Messiah, as this special person to restore heaven and earth. Um, they said that a lot of people found his appearance surprising, that it was a mystery. It wasn't what they were expecting. Now, no one was really sure what the Messiah would be like when he came. Some early rabbis before Jesus, they said when the Messiah comes, every woman will be constantly pregnant and having children, and every grapevine will be constantly giving forth wine. It'll just be wine all year long, and everyone's house will be full of kids. That's what they thought the Messiah meant. As they fell under Roman occupation and foreign occupation and rule, more and more they came to think of the Messiah as a military leader who would come in and slaughter the enemy forces and make them a kingdom again that could defeat all the enemy nations and set them free. They really thought as the Roman Empire tightened down and raised taxes and really made things difficult, that the Messiah would show up, kick some Roman butt, and make the economy good. That he would be this great politician to show up and make everything better. That he would have this supernatural empowerment from God to destroy Rome. And so when Jesus showed up and he began to serve and heal, but not slaughter and rule, it threw some people for a loop. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, this is where we're going to dig in a little bit and talk about how God is often surprising. Um, it says this. Verse 21, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And he says, oh, no, Jesus. No, no, no. This will never happen to you. That's not what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to defeat Rome. You're going to roll and reign in Jerusalem. And uh, none of these bad things are going to happen. And Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. He says, you have this human idea of God instead of this God idea of God. 
Jesus wasn't what people were expecting. Even his disciples, his closest followers and friends, they were taken by surprise when he talked about suffering or dying. Jesus is the clearest picture of what God is like, and it was nothing like what they thought God was like. They thought God would roll in with the tanks and with the jets and with missiles and guns and weapons of war. And instead he rolls in and he says, I'm going to let them kill me. This is not the picture of God that they had. Jesus broke their idea about what God was like. That God would rather die than kill. That he would rather lay down his life than take the life of the enemy. They wanted a God of tanks, not a God of a cross. And sometimes we think we would prefer a God who kills our enemies rather than a God who lays down his life for his enemies. And Peter was wrestling with what Jesus was saying because it did not fit his vision of God. He says, if you're the Messiah, you need to fit within this vision and you don't. And so Peter's like, so come fit inside my vision. I have to find what God is like and Jesus, you need to fit my model. You need to fit my idea. The words of Jesus still shape my view of God today. When I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these biographies of Jesus' life, I have to constantly dismantle my mental image of what God is like and rebuild it based upon what Jesus says and what he does. Because sometimes I've developed in my mind a wrong idea about what God is like, just like Peter did. When Peter's view of God was wrong here, though, notice what he did. He criticized Jesus instead of fixing his view of God. He's like, here's Jesus. Here's how you should be operating. Don't talk about suffering. Don't talk about dying. This is what you should be. This is how God should be. We do the exact same thing. I do the exact same thing. Sometimes I'm like, well, God, you're not fitting inside the picture that I've drawn of you of what you should look like. And so instead of fixing my view, I try to squeeze God into our criticisms of God often reveal the places in our lives where our view of God is most incomplete. You ever have those moments where you criticize God? Maybe you don't do it openly because you're like, I've been taught not to do that. But at least mentally you think, God, where are you? Why are you doing this this way? Why haven't you done this? And you have these little nagging things like, God, you're not operating like you should be operating. Those often reveal to us a place where our mental image of God is in complete. Many times we aren't prepared for God to surprise us. We want to figure him out so that we feel like we can predict what he's going to do next so that we feel like we're in control. We want to work out formulas for how God will act so we can predict his movements so we can imagine that we're in control of what happens next. And sometimes God surprises us. And we might need to consider that we have an incomplete or an incorrect or just plain wrong view of what God is really like. Now, Jesus here uses some really strong language in response to Peter's rebuke. So Jesus is like, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm God in human form. And here's what I've come to do. I've come to die. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. That's not what God would do. God would come to destroy Rome. He wouldn't come to die. And Peter says, just don't even talk like this. This isn't going to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's a nice thing to hear Jesus say, right? You know, wouldn't you just love to see Jesus? You're like, Jesus. And he's like, get behind me, Satan. That would crush me. That's probably the worst thing you could hear. What he's saying is, Peter, you're acting more like Satan than you're acting like me. You're behaving more like the enemy of God than you are behaving like God. Blasphemy 
is misrepresenting God. And that's what the serpent has been doing since the beginning. We go back to page uh, one and two of the Bible, and the serpent has always been misrepresenting what God is like. When we call God bad, we're echoing the hiss of the serpent. That's all the serpent does is say, God is bad. If God was good, he would have done this. If God was good, he would give you this. If God was good, he'd be showing up like this. If God was good, he'd be this. Dallas Willard said, never believe anything bad about God. Often when I start thinking something bad about God, it reveals a place in my mental image of God where it is incomplete. Where I've tried to fill in some mysterious part of God with some broken theology. Peter is saying a God who would go to the cross is a bad God because that's not a picture of power. Jesus is saying a God who would go to the cross is a good God because it is a picture of love. God often seems mysterious to us because he's motivated by love in everything, and we expect God to be motivated by power in everything. How we picture God as this all-powerful creator being, we think that power is how he expresses his character in everything, but it's not. Many times he limits his own power in order to show us his love. He's motivated completely by love. Then Jesus uses this play on words here in his follow-up rebuke to um, Peter. He calls him Peter, which was a given name. His actual birth name was Simon, which means pebble, and Peter means rock. And so when Jesus calls him Peter, it's like a nickname he's given him. He's like, oh no, you're no pebble. You're a rock. You're a boulder. And I don't know, maybe Peter was a strong, imposing guy. He was a fisherman, so he probably had large muscles from pulling in big nets. Maybe he was a big guy, and so Peter, when Jesus met him, he nicknamed him The Rock. You know, like the actor Dwayne Johnson, you know, maybe Peter was really built, and so Jesus was like, you're a rock. But here, Jesus does a clever play on words. He says, don't be a stumbling block, you rock. That's essentially what he's saying. He says, I've called you a rock. You are a rock. You're a boulder. But don't be a boulder that gets in the way of what I need to do. Then Jesus says to Peter, you're trying to make sense of God by thinking like a human instead of thinking like I do. Many times we want God to make sense to our human wisdom. And when we try to make sense of what he's doing and who he is, it seems mysterious to us. And sometimes later on what God is doing and what he's done makes sense and we say, oh, now that I'm a few years removed, I can see what God was doing back there, what he was developing in me, what he was doing and working in my world. There are often moments in life that make it seem like God is being mysterious and elusive, and later on I see what he was doing, I see what he was about, I see what he was up to. He's okay with the mystery. He's okay with not telling me what he's doing, even though I'm like, right now I don't understand God, just tell me what's happening. He seems to want people to wrestle with who he is because he thinks that that will lead to more people genuinely embracing his way of living and loving. Now, I wrestle with that because in the Christian tradition where I grew up, we were just supposed to digest dogma and not ask too many questions. They're like, here's what you believe. Don't ask too many questions. We've got it all figured out. Just accept this and you're good. And I'm like, but I have questions. Like, Don't ask that here. Church isn't a place for questions. But we see over and over again that Jesus loved questions. But I think he also wants us to be okay when we ask him questions. And he says, 
I'm not gonna give you an answer to that. I'm only gonna ask you this question. Do you trust me? And sometimes we have to trust that God appears to be mysterious. He appears to not be filling in all the blanks for us, but he's allowed to do that. Sometimes he thinks that that's gonna produce more growth in us more of us trusting him and learning to live and love like he did. So as we come to an end, what do we take away from this? Number one, be prepared for God to surprise you. I think sometimes we try to draw such tight boxes for God that God only operates like this and he always does this. And I'll have some friends who are like, well, it's pretty clear that God used to do this, but now he only does it this way. He never does this. And I get real nervous using some of that language because I think God has the freedom to surprise me. He has the freedom to say, you know what? I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to work in this group differently than I do in this church. And I'm going to work over here like this. And I'm going to do some things that may not fit inside your tight theological box. Be okay with God surprising you. Expect God to surprise you. Don't try to draw so tight of a theological box for God that there's no mystery left. Number two. Start the pilgrimage because the Christian faith is not a destination where you have everything figured out and you've accepted everything. The Christian faith is a pilgrimage where you walk with Jesus and you learn to love him and trust him along the way. Start a journey with Jesus. Say, I want to become a student of the way Jesus lived in love. Am I 100% convinced of everything? No. Well, good. I'm not either. But I found that as I follow Jesus, I become more and more convinced that he is who he said he is. He did what he said he did. And that living and loving like him changes me and changes the world. Number three, be okay with questions. There will never be a point in your Christian life where you have no questions about how God is operating, what he's doing in your world or in your life. And there's sometimes where he gives us answers and we say, ah, I understand what you were doing. But there's many times where we will continue asking that question our entire life. We may not have an answer until we spend eternity with Jesus. And I have to be okay with questions because I've learned to trust the answer. And the answer is a person, not something that will satisfy all my curiosity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming into our world and revealing in the most clear possible way what God is like. You didn't come in in a powerful way where everybody would be like, oh man, we better believe in this God or he's going to destroy us. Instead, you came in and you washed feet and you healed blind people. You healed sick people. You set free people who were in prison in spiritual bondage. And you invited everyone to come and make you king of their lives. Because you said that becoming a student of the way that you lived and loved would change everything. God, you revealed so much about the character and nature of God, and we are so grateful that you're not a God who came to coerce us or roll over us or threaten us into servitude, but instead you invite us into a relationship with you. But God, there remains questions in my life where I'm like, I'd really love an answer to this. Like, I'd really love to know what you were doing here and why I had to go through this and why this happened and why you didn't intervene even though I prayed and prayed and prayed. And God, I am learning to trust you even when you don't give me all the answers or even when you give me answers that I don't like to hear. God, help us all as pilgrims learning to follow you. Remember to stay behind you, not get in front of you because you are the leader and we are the followers. And sometimes, God, we try to lead and we say, Jesus, come on, keep up with me. 
instead of saying, Jesus, you lead, and we'll learn along the way. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ.